information. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong and it's Fed Day once again, Thursday the 3rd of November. This is Peter Lewis with an update on the business and finance headlines. The Federal Reserve has raised US interest rates to a 14-year high. The Fed hiked the bank's benchmark lending rate by 75 basis points, as expected, to a range of 3.75% to 4%. That's the highest since January 2008. It's the fourth consecutive 75 basis point increase as the central bank battles to bring inflation under control. In his press conference, after the monetary policy meeting, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell warned that rates, rates were likely to move up again, that the pace of increases could slow. Speaking in Hong Kong at the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit, Morgan Stanley Chairman and CEO James Gorman said that the world will face higher inflation and interest rates over the next few years. He said the global economy is going through, a, uh, going through a painful transition after years of monetary stimulus by central banks. He said it's highly improbable we will get back to the kind of 1% to 2% inflation we enjoyed before this crisis, more like around 4% globally over the next few years. And he said we'll have interest rates somewhere between 4 and 5%. Addressing the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit on Wednesday, Chief Executive John Lee said this is the moment to do business in Hong Kong as the worst is behind the SAR and abundant opportunities await. In his keynote speech, he said opportunity and timing are right here, right now in Hong Kong. This is the moment you've been waiting for. Go for it. Get in front and not behind. The CE said Hong Kong was unique and irreplaceable with both global advantages and the China advantage coming together in a single city. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by wealth investment strategist Enzio von Feil and Simon Cavender, partner of BDA Partners, with a view from Taiwan. It's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US stocks sank after Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell warned that it was still very premature to think about pausing interest rate increases. The S&P 500 tumbled 2.5% to close at 3,760. The Dow sank 505 points, or 1.6%, to settle at 32,148. The Nasdaq Composite dived 3.4% to finish at 10,525. Stocks initially rallied following the rate hike when the Fed's accompanying statement hinted at a possible policy change in the future. But sentiment turned sour during Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's press conference when he said rate rises had some way to go and the central bank's ultimate target for increases in interest rates had gone up. In Europe, the stock 600 index fell a third of a percent and in London, the FTSE 100 dropped 0.6%. Hong Kong stocks extended their gains on Wednesday in a session that was shortened by the arrival of Typhoon Naugi. Trading was halted at 1.55pm after the number 8 storm signal was hoisted. The Hang Seng Index added 372 points, or 2.4%, to 15,827. That brings its two-day gain to 7.8% following an awful October which saw the index slump 14.7%. The Tech Index added 2.6% to its 7.8% gain during the previous session. And on the mainland, 
The Shanghai Composite climbed 1.2% to 3,003. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 1.6% higher at $96.16 a barrel. Gold is down close to 1% at $1,634 an ounce. And one other commodity price to note, wheat futures fell sharply on Wednesday after Russia announced that it would resume grain exports on the Black Sea. Wheat futures in China, uh, in Chicago, fell six and a quarter percent, although they're still higher on the week. The yield on the 10-year Treasury initially fell to 3.9%, but as sentiment became more negative, it rebounded to close the session five basis points higher at 4.1%. And the US dollar fell following the FOMC statement, but then completely reversed their losses after Jerome Powell said interest rates will stay higher for longer. The US dollar index was up half a percent on the day against a basket of currencies. The euro this morning trading at 98 cents. The bucks at 147.97 Japanese yen. One British pound buys $1.13 and three quarter cents and eight Hong Kong dollars and 93 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan has slipped to 7.34 and a half against the dollar. And Bitcoin is down around 2% at $20,100. In Asia Pacific stock markets, first of all, Japanese markets, they're closed for a holiday uh, today. But in the ones that are open... In Australia, the ASX, two, uh, ASX 200 has tumbled over 2% at the open. In fact, it's down 2.25% now. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea is off 1.5%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to drop about 330 points when trading gets going this morning. Let's welcome our guests this morning. We have over in our Queensway studio, wealth investment strategist Enzio von Farr. Morning to you, Enzio. Morning, Peter. And joining me here in Broadcasting House, Simon Gavender, partner at BDA Partners. Morning to you, Simon. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let me go through a couple of the things in this Fed uh, statement. As you heard earlier, the Fed Res- Federal Reserve, it's raised US interest rates to a 14-year high. The bank hiked the benchmark lending rate by 75 basis points, as expected, to a range of three and three quarter to four percent. That's the highest since January 2008. It's the fourth consecutive uh, 75 basis point increase. Now, in a statement released after the decision, the central bank said it would take into account the cumulative tightening implemented so far, as well as the lags with, mon- with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation. Markets like that took it as being rather dovish, uh, but then it all went wrong during uh, Jerome Powell's money, uh, during Jerome Powell's press conference when he warned that rates were likely to move up again, although the pace of increases could slow. He said speculation that the central bank might pause was premature and added we still have some way to go. Data since our last meeting suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than expected. And so NGO markets ended up totally confused by what seemed to be uh, conflicting statements about the extent and pace of further rises. What do you make of this? Well, I think a lot of this is because nobody really knows what inflation rate the Fed is basing its forecasting and policy on. I actually reckon there's a consumer price inflation that we all know about. Then there's the core inflation, which excludes food and fuel prices. There's the personal consumption index, 
which is this, the PCE sources from businesses. Which is not, the Fed's preferred measure. That's the it? Fed's preferred measure, and that's the key point. Then there's something very important called the underlying inflation gauge, um, which is the New York Fed's PET, and it basically forecasts changes in trend of inflation, not the level. And according to that gauge, the inflation rate peaked in March of 2022. So can you explain to me a little bit, first of all, why there is such a big difference between uh, the consumer price index, uh, which is up at 8.2% yes. last month, and the personal consumption prices index, which shows inflation at 6.2%. Uh, why, why the difference? I believe, and I'm not really an expert on this, but I believe because the wholesale prices, the business prices are very much included in this PCE, the personal consumption index. And mm. that would then obviously because the margin for the consumer is going to be higher than what the wholesaler is paying. We all know that. Mm. So I think it's the wholesale prices that come into that. But that's my preliminary guess, Peter. And, and why does the Fed prefer the PCE one? Is, is there anything wrong with the headline inflation? rate that it doesn't like? Or? Well, I think two things. First of all, the, the headline inflation includes this very volatile food and fuel price stuff. Well, we all mm. know about what the weather and what OPEC's been up to of late. Um, and secondly, also, I think it wants something more holistic. So it wants also something that which involves the employer, not just the consumer. Okay. Simon, what, what are your thoughts? I think, I mean, it was all about the guidance yesterday. And Yes, it's it's much more hawkish than I think people had hoped for. And I mean, we saw from yesterday with sort of the markets really looking for any kind of good news and um, jumps on that even. And then it sort of turns out actually it wasn't that great. I mean, I think the thing to bear in mind is with interest rates, of course, it takes sort of nine to 12 months for them to actually come into effect. And it's been only eight months since um, Powell started raising rates. So it's only really starting to have an impact. And there's still no um, sign of the jobs market sort of weakening in any way. So um, I think we've still got a fair ways to go before we even get close to what everyone is looking for, which is the pivot and interest rates starting to come down. But they're not going to do that, I think, until 2024 sort of maybe 2025. Well, let me go through with both of you what Jerome Powell said, because he said some quite important things. Mm. The market started off in quite a bullish mood when they read that statement. It sounded like the Fed was going to take into account what it had done so far, uh, the, the cumulative effects of that, the lag it has, um, and, and the fact that maybe it might be time to, to, um, to reassess. Markets love that. And then Jerome Powell dropped three bombshells. The first one is he said the terminal rate... Uh, is going to be higher than previously expected, much higher. And he said, we're going to stay the course until the job is done. So this basically says, doesn't it, Enzio, uh, there's not going to be a pause. There's not going to be a pivot. The Fed is going to keep on going until it gets inflation back down to that rate. We better get used to higher interest rates for longer. I think he's right. Um, maybe he wants to emulate Paul Volcker, who pushed them up to 19%. Yes, 19%. Um, but again, he's also looking at one side of inflation, which is demand pull inflation, not cost push. And it's something that reminds me of what Maslow said years and years ago. It is tempting if the only tool that you have is a hammer to treat everything else as if it were a nail. Mm. <laughs> in other words, that it's all demand pull, and that's why he keeps on whacking away at this Fed funds rate to cut demand. I think it's going to hit 6% myself. I've been saying that for some time. 
So, Simon, it does sound like, isn't it, that uh, rates are going to end up a lot higher next year uh, than, than people thought. And we better start getting used to that and pricing that into our forecasts and into our assumptions about markets as well. Yes, that's right. And I think it'll have a, a big knock-on effect on investment. Um, I mean, rates haven't been this high for a long time. People will need to adjust to that. Financing costs for investments have gone up. Um, and obviously, sort of um, yields now have increased. So there are alternative sort of safer um, investments for people. Mm. Um, and there'll be, I think, yeah, the, the overall investment market, particularly in sort of Hong Kong and in China is going to remain weak, um, certainly yes. for the near future. Yes. So, and it sounds like not only are they going to be higher, they are going to stay there high for a long time as well. That's stagflation. I think that we're going to have this, what also Gorman of Morgan Stanley is saying, high inflation mm. because of this supply side inflation, the oil, the food, the wage costs, because people don't really want to work anymore. So there are twice as many open places to work as there are as there are unemployed every unemployed has two two jobs basically on offer and um, things like that the water prices are going to go through the roof because of climate change so those prices aren't going away you can do as much as you want with fed funds it's just not going to induce the, the, the Saudi um, prince to cut all prices yeah. So they were the first two things he said rates are going to go higher they're going to stay there high for a long time and here's the third thing he said he said, if we were to over tighten, we could use our tools to support the economy. But if we fail to tighten enough, inflation will become entrenched and that will be a much bigger problem. So he's basically saying he sees the risk and the Fed sees the risk as actually not tightening enough. Um, so this is really narrowing the path, isn't it, for um, a soft landing? Yeah, and that follows on to exactly what he said. Um, yes, narrows the path to a soft landing and therefore everyone's expectations now of the US going into recession and the knock-on effects of that will have increased. And you've been saying, NZO, for a while, stagflation is coming um, in the US and elsewhere. Well, yeah, I just think it's, I mean, we've got enough calls wrong, but I just think that the, um, he's, where he's perhaps misguided because he's so blinkered with his demand pull inflation that I think actually a lot of this cost push inflation is already entrenched. Let's stop the film briefly at wage costs. If people don't want to work, then there's a shortage in the labor market because guess what? There are fewer labor willing people around. So of course the prices go up. That then has ricochet effects on all sorts of other things. No sign really, Simon, is there of the, way of, um, the employment market easing really? It's, we had that jolt data. Mm. Uh, a day or so ago, it shows there's still um, demand for workers and they're still getting pay increases. Yes, that's right. I mean, as NZO said, twice as many jobs for workers. Mm. Yes, well, that's but... partly a sort of hangover from COVID and uh, perhaps people not really wanting to work quite as much and people taking themselves out of the labor force. But until certainly there's an easing there and we get the non-farm payrolls tomorrow, but until there's any um, easing, we're certainly not going to get um, the Fed taking their foot off the brakes. Okay, let's move on. Let me ask you about the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit, which has been going on here in Hong Kong. About 200 financial leaders here from uh, 100 institutions around the world. The main message seems to be um, Hong Kong is back in business and is returned to normality after three years of restrictions. Do you think um, NCO, this summit, and um, what we heard there from it, has convinced people that that is the case, if they believe that Hong Kong had never gone away in the first place, that is? 
Let me give you the long answer. No, absolutely not. I think they're, they're, they're talking things up, which I get. But until they, until they get rid of this silly um, COVID policy here in Hong Kong, which, by the way, doesn't seem to be wanted on the mainland. The mainland isn't telling us to do this. Mm. I think things are going to get stuck. It also gets worse than when people in the government get up and say, um, well, we should amalgamate the judicial systems of Hong Kong and China. So these things just aren't helping. Then thirdly, the, the lacking English. How can we have an international financial center if nobody here speaks English anymore? Did anyone say that? So I, I don't, didn't hear that. that well, so about the judicial systems? No, there was a guy who, who was the only Hong Kong member of the CPCC. I always mix that one up. It's something with consultative conference and people. Okay, And um, they, uh, he was saying that we should actually, this was not said at the conference, but it was in the, in the South China, that beacon of, of honesty and truth, that we um, that we should actually amalgamate the judicial systems. Now, that's just plain all wrong. You just mm. can't do that. So, I mean, the, the, John Lee, in his keynote speech, he touted some of the uh, policies that have been made to enhance the city's competitiveness. He mentioned the Hong Kong Investment Corporation, Going to use fiscal reserves uh, to promote uh, industries in the economy. We've got this 30 billion Hong Kong dollar scheme uh, for the co-investment fund to attract enterprises uh, to Hong Kong. And then we've got the top talent pass scheme to attract eligible talent to Hong Kong. Is this going to do it? Is this going to reverse the brain drain, bring people back, bring investment to the city? No, it won't. And certainly not in the near term. I, right. I felt that the theme was really from both Paul Chan and John Lee was to the audience, don't give up on us, um, don't abandon us. And we have all these initiatives in place that we're um, going to roll out. And those are all great and sort of to be expected. But mm. they're going to take two to five years to come to any kind of fruition and actual impact on the economy. So they're saying that they're planning for the future, wonderful, and perhaps that gives the audience a little bit of encouragement um, that the government is kind of forward thinking and um, investing in its its own economy, but it's not going to have any immediate near-term impact. As Enzi had said, I mean, what we need to do, and um, sort of yesterday at the conference, um, they talked about obviously how integrated Hong Kong and China are and how they depend on one another. And until we have a lifting of the COVID restrictions and we're back to the sort of the free travel and the flexibility that Hong Kong was um, renowned for and until we then have the movement back into China and the ability to go there and invest and the back and the forth um, nothing's actually going to change on the ground here in Hong Kong. If I could just squeeze in Peter I'm extremely concerned obviously as an ex von Hayek student of this Hong Kong Investment Corporation because what Paul Chan said and when he introduced this was that actually now it's time to, for the government to provide more guidance for investment. Well, that's totally against the Hong Kong grain. We have that the GIC in Tamasek in Singapore. I'm not sure if their track records have exactly been stellar, but why would a government official be more savvy at knowing which industries to invest in than a businessman who is mm -hmm. hard on the ground getting beaten up all day? Is it right, though, that the government could provide some encouragement and boost to certain things? I totally understand the point that, you know, we have this or we did have this laissez-faire economy where, you know, if people believed uh, that this uh, that this big science park and big northern metropolis out at uh, the border was going to attract investment. People would come anyway. Um, but is it right to go and 
maybe to, to try and promote certain things, like green finance, for example. That seems an eminently sensible thing for Hong Kong to do. Well, I wish they would promote the skill set here, not the investments. Skills being English, being vocational training, and I think the market can pretty much take care of the rest. It's fine and good saying Greater Bay Area, then when one starts nailing the people who pontificate about this and say, well, how do we actually implement? Oh, I'm only a big picture guy. I can't tell you how we're going to implement it. Simon, I mean, we are a laissez-faire economy, aren't we? Or that was, used to be our strength, really. Very little minimal government intervention. People would come and invest and invest where they saw opportunities. Do you think we're becoming too interventionist now? Well, I think the government is, everyone saying, you need to improve things. And they are, it's a somewhat sort of knee-jerk reaction. Okay, we need to come up with yes. some initiatives. But as you say, we've been a laissez-faire economy and the government's been very hands-off. So my fear is the implementation for these yes. initiatives is going to fall short. I mean, as you say, the science park and cyberport, and we've tried to turn ourselves into a fintech center before. I mean, green and sustainable finance, excellent, sounds good. But what's the government actually going to do to encourage that? I don't know. Um, sort of opening up the crypto market and... Um, sort of that side of things that requires regulatory changes and really quite good supervision um, that will take a long time to implement um, so it's it's really the sort of proof is in the pudding the implementation is what will take time at a price of 30 billion dollars I, I i really think we're going to have a tax hike within five or seven years here because we're just running out of money for these big white elephant projects well um paul chan did actually admit into yesterday um, when he spoke to RTHK in an interview that uh, finances are tight and that certainly seems yeah, to be the well, case we've got a, doing. a budget deficit three times as big as projected yes Okay, well, good to hear your thoughts there. Thank you both very much. You heard wealth investment strategist Enzio von Fahl and Simon Cavender, who's partner at BDA Partners. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Twenty-four and a half on the phone from Taipei is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning to you, Ross. Good morning. A lot of big things going on in, uh, in, in the world at the moment in November. One of them is going to be next week. Uh, we have the U.S. midterm elections, an important set of elections uh, for many reasons. Not looking good, though, is it, uh, Ross, for Joe Biden and the Democrats at the moment? What's gone wrong? Well, of course, there's the usual uh, midterm election for incumbent president. His party doesn't do well. Uh, uh, historical pattern. So the expectation was that the Democrats wouldn't do so well uh, anyway, but they had a period of time in the summer when uh, things started to look better for, for Democrats, the, what people call the generic ballot, uh, which party do you prefer Congress uh, to, to, to be led by? And the Democrats actually did, did pretty well for a period going into August and September Part of that may have been uh, due to the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, part of that was also be because the Republicans, frankly, had some lousy Senate candidates who were saying some weird things uh, as they were campaigning. So there was a period when, when things looked a little bit brighter for Democrats that maybe they'd even keep control of the House, believe it or not. Uh, but over the past month, those numbers have, have changed and things are not looking good for the Democrats in the House, not looking good in state elections where a number of governor races they were expected to win easily have become competitive. 
And then in the Senate, where which was supposed to be the, the last bastion for the Democrats, that even if they lost the House, they still would keep control of the Senate, and suddenly that's not look, looking good so well either. I think the reasons for that is uh, some of the Democrat uh, uh, candidates' performance hasn't been so great either. Uh, John Fetterman, their candidate in Pennsylvania, who unfortunately had a stroke earlier this year, but once he was in front of the cameras, he was on the stage debating uh, his Republican opponent, Dr. Oz. Let, his performance just wasn't that great. Let, let me ask you, how much um, is inflation part of the Democrats' problem? How much are people uh, focused on soaring food and energy prices? And are they blaming Joe Biden for that? Absolutely. That was the next uh, factor I was going to get to. So uh, like most elections, uh, the main issue for, for most voters is still the economy and uh, people are still feeling the pain of inflation. The the, the not, not not just personally when, when when you have to spend more money for things, but but uh, whether it's your home mortgage, the news about this is constantly negative. Uh, and again, that that's just bad for the for the incumbents. It's bad for the Democrats, and it's good for the Republicans. And um, if the Republicans do take control of both the Senate and the House. What does that mean for U.S. policy towards China? Does it get harder? Is there a softer approach? What do you think happens? Uh, it will definitely be harder. And, and you know, even though, of course, the president has to sign anything that comes out of Congress in order for it to become law, so there's still going to have to be some element of negotiation with with, with a, between a Republican-controlled Congress and, and the White House. But we should also keep in mind, and this is definitely going to happen, would be uh, what they do at the committee level in hearings and, and uh, demanding that Biden administration officials come and testify. And they're going to be grilled about their policies towards China. And that's going to be whole of government. So the, the Republicans will be questioning not, not just what the State Department or the Defense Department are doing, but the Commerce Department and the Treasury Department, uh, even the Education Department. Mm -hmm. will be looking at things like Chinese influence in, in, in schools, Confucius Institutes, etc. So it'll be across government where Biden administration and officials are going to be grilled about their China policies. And what about the relationship with Taiwan? Do you see any changes is there if the Republicans take control? Well, there's already a number of initiatives that, that are in motion. So there, there's a, a trade talks, which is not supposed to be for a free trade agreement, but there is a, a trade negotiation process that is in motion between the U.S. and Taiwan. Uh, there's weapon sales that, that are always under discussion. I don't think Congress could necessarily force the Biden administration to to sell more weapons to Taiwan. But but uh, there might be some consensus there on Taiwan issues. Uh, but it's similarly to China issues. I think whatever the Biden administration does in that regard, they're still going to get questioned by Congress saying you're not doing enough. You should be doing more. And are we going to see more high profile visits of the type we saw a couple of months ago when Nancy Pelosi visited uh, Taiwan and, and considerably angered uh, China in the process? Uh, interesting thing there is the Biden administration has yet to send a cabinet official, keeping in mind that the Trump administration did, although it was in its final uh, few months in, in uh, August 2020. Uh, so, so even a Republican-controlled Congress cannot force the Biden administration to send uh, cabinet-level officials, for example. But we'll certainly see more congressional visits, uh, and mm. something to watch out for would be 
will the next House Speaker, if it is in fact a Republican, if it is the current minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, will he make a, a, a visit to Taiwan uh, sometime in 2023? Okay, Ross, thank you very much. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Markets are sliding deep into the red this morning at the open in Australia. The ASX 200 is uh, down about two and a quarter percent. Markets in Japan are closed for a public holiday, but in South Korea, uh, the Cosby is sliding about 1.4 percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 350 points lower when trading gets going this morning. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Money Talk will be back then. Coming up after the news is Back Chats with Janice Wong and Jenny Lam. The weather forecast, cloudy with a few showers. Maximum temperature uh, is going to be around 24 degrees. Uh, and there's going to be sunny intervals apart from a few showers in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 22 degrees, 95% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. The observatory has cancelled all tropical cyclone warning signals and says Storm Nalge no longer poses a threat to Hong Kong. Tong Yu Fai is a senior scientific officer of the observatory. As Nagel moves away from Hong Kong and weakens, local winds have moderate significantly. As for the weather forecast for today, strong to gale force east to southeasterly winds. Winds will moderate gradually, cloudy with a few squally showers. Seas will be very rough as well. Members of the public are advised to stay away from the sore night and not to engage in water sports. Classes at AM and whole-day kindergartens, as well as at schools for children with disabilities, are suspended for the day. Primary and secondary school classes and those at PM kindergartens will resume. Transport services such as MTRs, buses and ferries are also resuming normal operations. The CEO of the Hong Kong Investment Funds Association hopes the government can ease travel curbs so the city can thrive in its role as a super connector to the mainland. Sally Wong hailed yesterday's speech by Chief Executive John Lee at the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit about the SAR's strengths as an international financial centre. But she said action was needed to improve access to cross-border connect schemes as well as unimpaired travelling. When we talk to colleagues from other fund associations, they still find, well, Hong Kong, you still have all these restrictions in place. We have removed them altogether. So we sort of outline, and especially if you're in an international financial center, that does not commensurate with our position. We need unfettered, unimpaired traveling and access to other markets. And only with this can we really play to the strengths and our role as a super connector between China and the rest of the world. Russia has resumed its participation in the Black Sea grain export deal, having pulled out following last week's attack on its naval base in occupied Crimea. The breakthrough came in talks between Russia and Turkey. Igor Konoshenkov is from Russia's defense ministry. Thanks to the participation of the United Nations and Turkey's assistance, we were able to get the necessary written guarantees from the Ukrainian side about not using the humanitarian shipping corridor and Ukrainian ports designated for the export of agricultural products for military actions against the Russian Federation. 
Both Ukraine and the UN have rejected Russian claims that Ukraine had used the corridor for, for attacks. Ship operators had continued to leave Ukraine's ports laden with grain over the past two days. And finally, UN officials have warned that climate change is fueling global health crises, including rising cases of disease and potential famine. The World Health Organization says warmer temperatures and increased flooding are leading to more cholera, malaria and dengue fever. There'll be more news from RTHK on the hour. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's programme, we're looking at the long waiting time patients seeking specialist care through the public health care system. The latest data shows that patients who are in a stable condition face waits of up to 205 weeks or just shy of four years in the worst case scenario. The hospital authority explains that queues have become longer due to the knock-on effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Chief Executive John Lee has promised to cut waiting times for new internal medicine patients by 